1: Hey, everybody. Welcome to Battleground Podcast. Um, Today, I have an amazing guest. I've been excited to talk to him for a while now. His name is Shane Osborne. Shane is a former naval aviator who extended his tour after 9-11 to continue flying combat missions. Shane was assigned to the Fleet Air Reconnaissance Squadron 1, the World Watchers, Um, and Shane kind of had an interesting experience in the air when he collided with a Chinese aircraft. Somehow he managed to safely land the plane, but he, along with 23 of his people who were on that plane, were surrounded by the Chinese military for almost a month. (laughs) Shane, oh, now you're the CEO of RWH Energy, which, which is a company that is just like kicking ass and taking names and... It's Shane. It's an honor to have you here. Thank you for giving us some of your time. Thanks for having me, Sean. appreciate it. <laughs> so you got to take me back to the very beginning and tell me about like, how you decided to serve your country. I know that flying is something that is, is that you've wanted to do since you were young.
2: Yeah. So my mom was, uh, I was raised by a single mom. She was director of nurses at the Nebraska veterans home. So I, after school weekends, holidays, I hung out with vets all the time here in World <laughs> War II, Korea, war stories, Vietnam, obviously. And so I always wanted to serve. So I didn't go through life wondering what I was going to do. I knew it by the time I was in second grade, I was writing papers about wanting to fly, uh, for either the air force, or the Navy. And <clears throat> so I, I was lucky enough, and you know, I graduated high school in 92 and, and, uh, that was the downturn, right? The Cold War had ended and there wasn't a lot of slots, a lot of things. So I was lucky because we were, you know, we didn't have a lot of money and uh, I was able to get an ROTC scholarship to the University of Nebraska. And so that's, that's how it all started and uh, graduated in 96, was there when the Huskers actually played good football and hopefully <laughs> they will be again soon <laughs>
1: <laughs> and then uh, headed off to flight school in Pensacola and, and was able to, to live my dream. So. So I was wondering if you went to the Naval Academy, you know, uh, and uh, I, you know, when you pr- prep for these interviews, like, I want to know about you, but I, won't, I don't want to know too much because I want to learn during the interview process. And I sure. just thought to myself, like, I wonder if he's a Naval Academy guy, because I'll tell you this, like, no, I, I tried. You did. What? <laughs> okay. But tell me. I was nominated. To, the, the, the senator
2: accent at the time nominated me to West Point and I wanted to fly. I, I didn't even apply to West Point. I don't know what happened with their paperwork, but they nominated me to the wrong academy. So, I was so heart, heartbroken. <laughs> and wish I could have gone to Annapolis, but it all worked out.
1: Well, so I don't think I could have handled. I don't think I could have handled West Point. I mean, I was an ROTC guy as well. I, I think that ROTC teaches yeah. you some like very important life lessons about being a college student and like getting to where you need to be on time and not having somebody like putting a finger in your chest, telling you to do it. Absolutely. You know, so I think that there's value in that. But I also like when when outlaw platoon came out, it's like required reading at at West Point and they've got a class on it. So I'll go and meet with those cadets and I see the life that they live, man. And I I say this often. I don't think I could do it. Like, I I don't know (laughs) that if I entered the military through an academy, I don't know if I could have made it. I just don't. It it was they didn't they didn't
2: get the college life we did. We'll just leave it at that to say <laughs> yeah. the least, right? I mean that's a, definitely a, a dedication. And I remember because I, I don't know, we had, all my best friends in the Navy were academy guys. We all got down to Pensacola to flight school, and they went nuts, right? They were <laughs> <laughs> exactly
1: at the for prison. <laughs> they, were, they were having a good time. <laughs> well, that's what I'm saying. Like, so we had at least in the Army and in, in in the infantry because I was in the infantry. So we would have. Two, ki- and two kinds of West Point officers. And by the way, like, I, I'm i not judging at all. Like, I, I love what I've got tons of friends that are West Point guys. Um, but like, well, now in West Point women as well. But we had people that would graduate that would come out that were super smoked, you know, because they had just done four years of like really tough stuff, you know, four years of, of basic training, essentially. And then they'd come into a unit and already, already emotionally mentally physically exhausted then you had the other guys that were just super gung-ho and and when they got to their yeah. unit i do feel like there was a little bit of like they go to the infantry officer basic course they go to their schools i do feel like there's a little bit of like release there like like they're like you said escaped prisoners or something it's funny <laughs> yeah so yeah. you that's it yeah. so so you get to pensacola right. and, and and you're flying so like <coughs> tell me like, I'm, I'm not a Navy guy, so I don't know anything about the rigors of your training. Like, tell me, tell me about what flight school was like at Pensacola and obviously your Navy. So, you, you Navy flies rotary wing and fixed wing. So, how did you get selected for fixed yep. wing?
2: So, so it's, it's all, it's all about really the needs of the Navy is what it is. So, the week you graduate, whatever slots they have, that's what's there. But the, 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 the interesting thing about me is I was in a, I was actually, I went from Pensacola to Corpus Christi, Texas, um, and trained there and I had been accelerated. They were trying to meet the numbers for the year. So they were flying me twice a day, which was rare. And I got accelerated, but I graduated number one in my class in the history of the Navy is if you graduate number one, you get your choice. And I wanted to fly fighter jets, right? I was a Top Gun kid. That was, you know, me growing up, the first yeah. version, you know, that was <laughs> yeah. it. That, I, had, I had the whole roll down, the, the glasses, everything. That's all I'd ever wanted to do since I was five, six years old. And they had a new platform for props that it was a, a King Air that they just introduced. They hadn't put a student through this airplane yet. And so they took four of us as a test to put us through this class. So they took four of us that were all tops of our classes just so it would make sure it would go well. And so I was the first guy, at least that I know of in the history, at least the last, you know, 40 years that graduated number one in his class and didn't get his top choice. So at first I was pretty bummed, but we all know, you know, you get setbacks in life and it ended up working out for the best. So I went through the prop training, went through Jacksonville. And when I was in Corpus, after i'd selected props i was out with a couple of instructors who were awesome guys kind of kind of odd and they kind of pulled me (laughs) aside so there's only two of these squadrons in the world now there's just one and they were they were like hey have you ever thought of going vq which is electronic warfare it's reconnaissance and and i'm like i hadn't really thought about it and they're like well we'd like you to consider it so this is a you know, these two squadrons pretty much hand select who's going to come in, right, and be part of the brotherhood, so to speak, sisterhood, whatever you want to call it. But, and so I got interested in it, but um, I speak Spanish. So there's one squadron in Whidbey Island, Washington, VQ1, and then there's another VQ2. It's, it's now in Whidbey, but it's in Rota, Spain, like literally on the beach. <laughs> and I'm like, oh, I'm going VQ 2 I want VQ 2 Guess what? They sent me to VQ1. I'm like, you gotta be kidding me. I speak Spanish. I'm going to meet my wife over there. This is going to be great. You know, they do all their tours are to like Bay, Crete and Europe. And, you know, so Whibby Island on the West Coast goes to Masao, Japan, which is the Northern tip, the frozen tundra of Japan. Okinawa, Bahrain, you know what I mean? It's not, it's, it's, you know, you're covering the important areas of the world. Don't get me wrong, but as far as places to deploy to, they're, they're not, not near as, uh, enticing as Dubai and, <laughs> you know, Germany and things like that, but it works out. Like I said, once again, it works out.
1: So the Navy, the Navy took a Spanish speaking Naval officer and instead of sending that person to Spain, they sent him to Japan. Yeah. Well, we were based, Whidbey Island is north of Seattle and it's a fishing town.
2: And it is one of the most beautiful places on earth. If you're married, I was not, you've got to drive an hour and a half to see, to, to, to even see a female. Like you got to go to Seattle or Vancouver, which we went to Vancouver a lot, but because this was just a little small fishing town and they didn't particularly like us there that much. Um, uh, you know, the, the, the local fishermen didn't care for us. So it was, uh, it was interesting. It was beautiful, but But uh,
1: not not a place for a young single guy to be. Today, I want to talk about something that's been on the minds of many Americans lately. Energy independence. With rising energy prices and geopolitical tensions, it's more important than ever for our country to be self-sufficient when it comes to our energy needs. And that's where Deep Well Services comes in they're a company that's not only dedicated to delivering top-notch services to the oil and gas industry, but they're also committed to the goal of American energy independence. With their cutting-edge technology, an expert team of professionals, they're helping to unlock new sources of domestic energy and reduce our dependence on foreign oil. But that's not all. Deepwell Services is also a great American company that's hiring like crazy right now. And they're not just looking for anyone. They're seeking out talented and hardworking individuals who wanna join their team and make a difference. And with competitive salaries and benefits, it's a great opportunity to not only work for a patriotic company, but also build a rewarding career in the energy sector. So if you're looking for a job with purpose and meaning, or if you're simply passionate about American energy independence, then you should definitely check out Deepwell Services. Visit their website at deepwellservices.com to learn more about their company and career opportunities. So how how did you not? So you didn't get your first choice out of flight school. And and forgive me if the terminology is incorrect, but you didn't get your first yeah, choice after after you left flight school because you were selected for an experimental program or something yeah they, they yeah they had a new airframe a new airplane that they were going to start training and they didn't even have
2: simulators for it it's just a king air 200 but they they wanted to make sure that you know it was successful right um and uh it you know it all worked out i mean i was promised my my choice of assignment for taking this on and that didn't that got changed because of the needs of the navy or, are more than the needs of Shane Osborne, right? You just learned At yeah. the time, you're upset, but now I look back on it, I'm like, yeah, that stuff in the military, and you know what I'm talking about, it's not the good days that built you. It's the bad ones, right? It's not getting what you want. It's getting what what the Navy needs and, and just taking it and understanding that, you know, there is a cause greater than your own personal want of wanting to be on the beach and in, in road to Spain as opposed to Whitby Island, Washington, and that that's just, you know, the lo- wonderful life lessons that you just, I don't think you can get outside of the military. Maybe there's other places you can learn some of this stuff, but, you know, going with a crew, deploying halfway around the world and having that responsibility and taking that on. That's just something you're not going to get in the civilian world.
1: I, I completely agree. Not at with that you. age. No, I completely agree with you. How old were you during all this? I So, so I literally, <clears throat> I, I graduated college when I was 21.
2: Um, and I graduated flight school in in literally under two years, which is very rare. Hmm. Um, and so by the time I was a mission commander, I was the youngest mission commander in our squadrons, 70, 80, well, it's been gosh, 80, 90 years now. God, I'm getting old, but history. So I was like a brand new Oh three. I just pinned it on. And I was a mission commander in charge of that airplane. When my incident happened, uh, in China, I'd only been flying wow. as an aircraft commander for like 90 hours <laughs> <laughs> when the mid air <matter> happened. <laughs> <It> was so... <laughs>
1: <laughs> I was I was pretty young and pretty green. Well, that's crazy because you know you talk you talk about like the needs of the Navy and you know at at that time, I mean because you you extended your tour after 9 11 and this was just when I I, I mean 9 11 was was that moment that I decided to join. Um, So that's what drove me into service. I don't come from a long line of like military generals or something. I was just a kid that saw our country attacked and wanted to get in the fight. But did the operational tempo like because – there, I feel like we had a very different military prior to September 11th, and then 9/11 happens. So not only does it, not only did it change our military and the operational tempo, but it also changed our country forever. I feel like. Um, did you notice a big change in the way? It's more sense of urgency, or what? Did you notice a change before and after
2: 9/11? You know, a, a little bit, but but the unique thing about my squadron BQ one and the BQ two is there was only two of them and we had to cover, we were collecting intelligence in peacetime and wartime. Right. So we do combat missions, but also you got, you know, it's the, we had patches that's, that were a, a ripoff of Ronald Reagan. It said, in God, we trust all others we monitor. and So, <laughs> so, so we, we really had an op tempo where we were deployed, not going out six months and then coming back for a year, year and a half and going to, you know, we deployed, we've been deployed 365 days a year in at least two or three locations around the world, my squadron, for the last, since World War II. So our op tempo, I'm not going to say it didn't step up a little. It just changed where we were at more because we used to kind of move around. We we started completely, we'll get into this later, but started, you know, after 9-11 started ignoring the Far East and China, which is ridiculous. But the... The fact is, is we were always deployed that was the cool thing about our squadron i i went out as a 26 year old young o3 lieutenant <clears throat> and i was it like i would deploy with the crew and some maintenance i was in charge of everything i had no adult permission to speak of there was no commanders there they were back in Whidbey island you know monitoring things so we'd have a, a site you know maybe a crew in massau maybe a crew in Kadena, and maybe in uh, a crew in Bahrain. And so I was in charge of that crew. I was, you know, you're setting up housing, you're making sure, you know, everything's taken care of the
1: maintenance of the airplane. So it was a really huge responsibility that was pretty cool and unique. It's amazing. The level of responsibility that the United States military gives to 20 somethings it's, it's, and it's, it's, I hear story after story of people like, like you, Shane, who have like, like who've, who've just given enormous responsibilities and like it's it's so funny like as a young platoon leader so I in Afghanistan I was 23 24 years old um, I was a platoon leader in charge of 40 men come back and six leading those guys through combat right like those guys those men because back then in the infantry it's just men but like they were they were it's basically like I was the CEO of a company of 40. Basically. You yeah. sign for everything. You yeah. know, it's it's just you're an executive essentially. And then I come back, um After three years of an experience like that, I'm promoted to executive officer of an infantry company, which is 120 people. And basically the job description of an executive officer, the second in the chain of command of the company commander is you just basically do everything that the company commander doesn't want to do, which is basically everything that's not leading people in the (laughs) field. So if you're not if you're not deployed, you're doing basically everything that includes like beans, bullets, logistics. But again, I was twenty seven. And then I took an interim company command at 28 and then a battalion rear detachment command in charge of a battalion at 29. So it's like where and and then you come back to the civilian world, Shane. And I have to admit, this is a little bit like shocking to me, just how little civilians truly understand how much authority and power that young military officers have. And I often wonder, I mean, because you're the CEO of a successful company now, Shane, but I often wonder Is it do you do you get the same sense that there is a a huge communication gap or a a huge gap between, you know, the the type of service that veterans have? It blows me away. It, It blows me away. Even with people that have like brothers, sisters, kids in the
2: military, just how little they truly know about the military.
1: It's so true.
2: You know, I mean, there's the responsibility aspect. They all they all. They all think we act like we're in boot camp the entire time, like yeah. we're all, you know, <laughs> yelling orders at each other all the time. am like, oh, no, oh, that wouldn't work at all. I'm sorry. But, you know, they, they think that, you know, you're It, it it's like it's just it, but you over time at first, it's shocking. When I got out, I kind of went into a depression. I, I didn't know what to do. I got into the civilian world. And we call everybody vice presidents and stuff. We give everybody all these titles. I know, but it could mean you're like the number two guy at J.P. Morgan, or you're a nobody. Like, I just like, what? What does this mean? Now, I I strongly believe you treat everybody the same, so it doesn't matter title. That's not what I'm saying. It was just so confusing to me. You know, in the military, you had a rank. You had a you had a MOS or whatever. You know what you did, and that and so it was pretty under, easy to understand where you were in the food chain and what your responsibilities were. And then the civilian world. It, it was it was uh, um, so less structured that I've been used to that structure. It just took a while to adjust, and I I kind of find the civilian world pretty easy. There's tough challenges in business. Don't get me wrong, but nobody's shooting at you. you, yeah. you know what I mean. And that I think that perspective as a veteran helps me chill out when something doesn't the deal doesn't go my way right? I lose a big deal that just costs me millions of dollars. Things like that where most people will be freaking out. It's kind of like, okay, that sucked. Moving on. Yeah. <laughs> right. The old saying, em- embrace the suck, yeah. right? Just take it, <laughs> breathe it in, smile a little bit, you know, maybe take an evening and have a few and then get back at it.
1: Man, I, I <laughs> it's so funny. It's amazing. Like you, you being in the Navy, me being in the army, but our, our experiences are so, so similar. I, I just, it, it never ceases to amaze me how that tends to be the case of, of veterans, you know? Um, so take me back to the moment where those two instructors are, are coming to you and saying like, have you ever thought of, what do you call it? Like electronic warfare? It's called, yeah, it's called electronic warfare. Um, the, the, the capabilities of that plane. It's getting. It's
2: going to be getting retired here. And, and it
1: Which totally plane, left. Shane? The e, the EP3? It's an EP three. EP
2: EP three. So this is a big four engine prop. When people, I tell people I flew a spy plane. It, this isn't an SR seventy one. It's not some sexy Mach one. This is a slow. We called it the Sky Pig. Um, <laughs> it, it, it's got stuff hanging off everywhere. I, you know, if we go faster than two hundred and fifty knots. Things start airplane the you antennas know, and stuff, so we were literally limited to 250 knots. It's the size of a 737, like a Southwest jet. So it's it's a big converted airliner is what it is.
1: So, uh, so you first of all you could totally and you should tell people that you fly SR71s. I mean, like uh, you, I think <laughs> with your experience, like your Sorry, experience, I got horrible like, allergies. I keep coughing. Oh God, Shane, it's okay, it's okay. Um, but you should totally tell people that because your job, just, you, the job that you did, just sounds super cool. And also the the sky pig is is like the worst nickname ever for an airplane. Sounds oh, ridiculous. This thing is, uh, it, it's not pretty.
2: But it was a, it, it, we had a lot of cool gear on that airplane. Well, can what, do a lot of you know the crew of twenty four people. That's a big crew. That, that is huge. A, you know, You know, that's, yeah, we had, we had all, we covered the full
1: spectrum of intelligence
2: gathering on that
1: thing. So, so, you know, explain, explain to people what like the mission was, the stuff that you can talk (coughs) about, like, cause you know, you hear it's a spy plane, but like, and and I, 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 as a military guy, want to ask you about the capabilities of the plane, but of course you might not be able to talk about that. But like, what, what was the mission when you say electronic warfare? Sure. The 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 mission varied depending on if it was wartime or peacetime. Peacetime, we're just trying to figure out how
2: the enemy operates, right? So we're, we're listening, we're watching, we're detecting all types of different spec from er- everything from communications to signals to everything to just see how they communicate, how they work. You know, we 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 didn't fly over, obviously, we stayed out in international airspace, but you know, they would react in di- different sectors differently depending on where you were at, like on the coast of China, right? They, The Southern area operated completely differently than the Northern. And so I'm not, I don't wanna to get too specific, but that was, and then in wartime, we, we, the, the fighter jets didn't go in if us or we had, there's a rivet joint, the RC-135 in the Air Force. Yes. We had to be airborne because we would, we would let them know if they were about to get shot. <laughs> Basically, I'm just, I'm paraphrasing, I'm, I'm, but we knew if the enemy knew where, where the fighters were so we would also locate things on the ground right we could pinpoint the location so not only were we listening we knew you're at so like the beginning of afghanistan they for some reason thought if it was nighttime they could do whatever the hell they wanted right it we're talking literally the very first months yeah of the of of the war and it was like god you know and and they they would be get chatty kathy on the radios while they were driving around in their convoys, you yeah. know so we'd sit in and listen in with our, you know, linguists and and, and had to make that call: good guy, bad guy, right? And then uh, you'd call it in and give them the location, and we'd say, "Here, hit
1: this spot," and they'd hit it. Okay, so this is this is fascinating to me because so we would we <coughs> would have intel passed to us from like rivet joint or or aircraft like yeah. you. Yeah, and, that was us. And by the way, we never knew what the hell that was. I mean, I'm just learning about it now. I mean, I've been out for damn yeah. near over 10 years and I still like cuz we would get this intel passed down from us and 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 we would we would like take the intel that was passed from these airplanes and cuz you know, pass on like what they were saying and where you thought they would be. And oftentimes it's, it's mm-hmm. they can one kilometer by one kilometer area, or sometimes it's even more specific than that. And we would, we would take those locations in those eight digit grid coordinates and plot them on our map and say, Oh man, like this, yeah, this is the enemy and because this is a historical ambush site. And they must be there planning an attack. So what we would do once we got that intel is we would take our howitzers and we would fire harassment and interdiction fires on those sites after we got the intel from you to let the enemy know that like we know where they are and we can yeah. monitor what they're saying. I mean, that's fascinating that you can do that from that high up in the air. We had people on the ground that, that you know, I don't think, by the way, this I don't think I'm disclosing anything that's, that's secret here because... The enemy no. knew. The enemy had their own comsec, the communication security. They would say, like for example, yeah. like woods, they move the wood from here to there. They were talking about wood meant rockets. So they had their own communication <clears> security <throat> because they knew that we were monitoring what they were saying. Yeah, it took them a while to figure it
2: out. They made it was it was it was not uh, not smart on their part those first
1: probably six to eight months of oh, the war. I, I'll tell you that even. When I was there in two thousand and six, this was five years after you're talking about, we would still meet remote tribes in and like in eastern Afghanistan that had never seen an American. And I mean, there's no TVs, there's no electricity, there's no running water, no. there's no cable, they get no news. Like, and I mean like if you want to go back to a time when Christ walked the earth at an AK forty seven and a pickup truck and an ICOM radio, and that's Afghanistan, and like <coughs> these people like we would we would lace targets for fixed wing aircraft or close air support for JDAM or something. And they were think that like, they, they, they thought that we were like wizards. Like we were calling this stuff down from heaven sure. on them. And I'm not even exaggerating. They, they thought it was magic. No, I, it's a, it's amazing how, how
2: far removed they are from modern society. You just don't even think it could exist.
1: Uh, it's it, like, it's, it's truly, it. we're on the ground in Afghanistan and it was the closest thing to real life you know, the Flintstones meet the Jetsons. You know, yeah. um, because sure. they they would see stuff. It w- they we would get out of our trucks, you know, in our helmets, our sun, our glasses, our ballistic glasses, gloves, covered from head to toe, and armor. Like we'd look like we were some damn alien, like uh, climbing out of a spacecraft yeah. or something. You know, yeah. so yeah, it's crazy. But it's fascinating to me to hear that. How how are you able? How do you know? So we get intel from you. Right, and we know that it's coming from higher that's basically how that's basically how we know but where how do you know where to look well i mean you've got you've got historical
2: stuff going on, you've got certain uh, methods uh, in in you're scanning too, right? You're not always precise so you, that's why we had such a big crew right <laughs> we, yeah. were, we We're monitoring a lot of different channels when i was I'd be up flying, I would have probably. 10, 12 different conversations going on and one, some in the left ear, some in the right, because I'm monitoring the back what's going on while I'm flying the airplane, because I was the mission commander too. I wasn't just the aircraft commander. And so you're, you're hearing all these reports and then you're hearing your, your folks in the back talking to each other as they're trying, we're trying to verify, right? We don't just go, okay, we found some people, Yeah, <laughs> you know, we got we to gotta make sure that they're bad guys and not just some, you know, poor bastard trying to get the hell out of there you know at the start of the war you know because a lot of people were just running to Iran and running to Pakistan to get out of town they didn't want you know and so you had to make that determination so it took a lot of different we didn't want to just go up a one source we'd want to make sure we're verified and that's why I said in the beginning it was just crazy what they were saying on the radios and stuff you know it was like they were just oblivious hmm. um and then they they started you know, like you said, use some cob sack on it and, and, and get a little better about it. But but those first few months, it was like, I can't believe they just said that on the radio. Yeah. You, know, you know what I mean? It's yeah. like, okay, they, they,
1: that's that's pretty convincing to me. We're moving <laughs> Osama bin Laden to this address. Yeah. <laughs> I, uh, so what altitude do you fly at?
2: Oh, geez, we're, we're at like 24,000 feet. The plane has so many holes in it from all these dishes and stuff <laughs> attached to it. We couldn't pressurize and get any higher. We, the, now the rivet joint was a, is a 707. So they could get up in the thirties. They, they could cover a lot more ground because the higher you are, the more electrons are hitting the airplane, right? So the, the larger area you can cover and monitor. Does that make sense? No, no, that's, well, you know, it's, it's all about the curvature of the earth, right? So the higher you are, the more it's going to hit you, more electrons are going to hit your airplane. More electrons? Yeah. And, and radio signals, uh, radar, everything. See right? your way. So you this are, is why
1: the... you fly. You know, I'm just, a am just a simple gr- ground pounding grunt, <laughs> like <laughs> electrons. Uh, don't kid yourself. I'm, I'm not that bright. <laughs> Okay, So you got to tell me, you got to tell me. So you, I, you had like, you gained international recognition. I mean, what, uh, when your, when your spy plane crashed into a Chinese aircraft, was it a MIG? Yeah, it was a J eight. It was an indigenously produced, it, it, uh, fighter plane, but a big one kind
2: of like, the, it looks a lot like the old F four Phantom. It was that size. So it was a big old cold war era fighter jets so we monitor constantly like i said earlier you know all of our friends and foes quite frankly we you know and <clears throat> we were used to you know we go off the coast of china but when this this occurred this incident occurred april 1st 2001 so it was prior to september 11th and uh bush had just taken office and as you know the, those guys were all hawkish as hell, to say the least, right? So, the yes. tensions with China went up with Zhang, the man, quick, right? So, we went from doing a few missions to a lot of missions off of China. You know, we'd do one or two a week to five days a week, right? And it was pissing them off. We would stay off the coast. We were, in, we were you know, operating in international airspace. Don't get me wrong, but it just, you know, nobody, just like we freak out when the Russians come over near Alaska right? It's like, no, they can operate there. That's international law. Stop making it a big deal. It's it's when it's unprofessional that it becomes a big deal, right? So they had a particular uh, squadron leader that was getting more and more aggressive. And like I said, I was a brand new mission commander. This was my first deployment as a mission commander. You know, uh, I had maybe 90 hours uh, as a commander. And so, which is not a lot when you fly 10, 11 hour missions, you know what I mean? So just to put it in perspective, 90 hours is, you know, I'd done some training and maybe six or seven missions, yeah. right? Not much. And, uh, and so he was getting more and more harassing. And, you know, they this had gone on with the Russians in the cold war where they'd intercept and come up and thump you, which means they, you know, they go underneath your airplane and go vertical right in front of you and make you fly through their jet wash, which shakes the hell out of the airplane. We were actually used to that, but the Russians knew how to fly. They were trained in formation training. Back then, the Chinese didn't even teach form flying. They've come a long way. This is 2001, they've come a long way, trust me. But back then, they didn't even train in their own squadrons, flying formation off of each other. So now, they're coming up, trying to harass us, and they're flying off our wing, trying to fly form off a slow plane doing like 180 knots at 24,000 feet. Well, fighter jets aren't built to fly that slow that high, so they're unstable. And that was really the problem. So in the weeks leading up to this, he'd become more and more harassing. They'd come out usually with two, sometimes four, but most of the time, two fighter jets. And they'd just sit out there and we'd, we'd uh, exchange uh, hand signals <laughs> through the windows, <laughs> stuff like that. And, uh, you know, it was it was so crazy. I look back at now, that was, it started to become everyday life. Like literally, I'm unarmed, flying a slow lumbering prop in the middle of the ocean and I've got a fighter jet with missiles on it threatening me. You know, on a daily basis, and so this day um, we were literally done with the mission. We were like ten minutes from going home. We get inter- we get uh, we get instructions that we're going to be intercepted, and so I said, "Okay, we're staying on because that's when you collect good intel, right? They're talking to their base. You're figuring out what's going on. You're going to see their tactics, etc." So instead of just running, I stay. That's you know, that's my call. Some would say that was aggressive. I don't think it was. I think it was my damn job. And so we stayed and this guy came up. And this time, instead of staying off my wing like 40, 50 feet, he came up and he was in between my props. Like three feet away. And I'm like, what in the hell? So I'm calling back to my navigator going, check our position. Because I thought we were screwed up and we're in their airspace. Do you know what I mean? I mean, this was like, this ain't good. So I immediately called back going, you know, nab to Regina Kaufman. She was, we called her the pocket nav. She was about five foot tall. So we called her pocket yeah. And uh, <laughs> uh, And she's like, no, we're way out. We're not even, and I've said, okay. So he comes up twice. And one time he stalled underneath me, lost controlled flight, fell off. So they turned away and I'm like, okay, they're turning away. It's time to go home, right? And I'm thinking, oh my God, this is, I knew that right then the president would know about this in about two minutes. That's how serious this was. So I'm turned around, headed towards Okinawa. I'm starting to speed up to go home because when we're on station, we go as slow as we can to save gas so we can stay there longer. Right? So I'm speeding up. I got the autopilot on. All of a sudden I get a call from the back and they said, here they come again. And I'm like, what in the hell is this guy doing? Cause they usually came once, stayed a while, Messed around and left, right? Now, this was the third intercept of this flight, which for me, it never happened. I'm not saying it never happened before, but not not to me. And so, the third time he came in, he came from behind us too fast and he tried to slow down by pitching his nose up and he went right into my left prop. So, where his tail, you know, meets his fuselage of the airplane right there, my left, far left engine cut him in half. It's like I, the best way to describe it is if you're a redneck like I am. It's like it's like doing 100 miles an hour down a gravel road and hitting a walk forward. That's the best way I can describe it. If you've ever done, driven gravel roads, you know at that point you're just along for the ride. You hope it stays yeah. on the road. And so as it cut his plane in half, my nose flipped violently to the left, obviously, because my wing had just been impacted. His tail broke off, tore through my aileron, which turns the airplane. Tore a hole through that, and then his nose broke apart. Hit my nose and tore my nose completely off of the airplane. And next thing I know, we're inverted in a dive. We were we were in an inverted dive for almost two miles. Are you in kidding this me? You know the, the planes exploded. And there's you know I I had I, and I just thought we're dead. And I look down. I'm looking you know I'm looking up at the ocean, and and I I see his plane half of it, the front fuselage, with like a two block flame bursting out of the back of it. You know, as he's going straight towards the ocean, and I was like, "Man, he's you know he's going quick." And I realized we were falling at almost the same rate. You know, that's my reference point. I saw him punch out. He literally asked for permission to eject. This is the kind of <laughs> government. Where this guy's going down in flames, and he's calling his his commander to ask for permission to eject. Oh my god! It was an, it's insane. That probably I probably should have just said that, but I did. Um, anyway. So we're, we're falling at this rate and I'm like, I'm trying to get the plane right side up. And I finally got it right side up and we're still in a nose dive, but I knew it. It just, I just it was taking full right aileron, right rudder to hold the plane up. But I just had this feeling of don't pull, don't pull, don't pull. I, and it was God, plain and simple. And I'll tell you why in a minute. So we started out at 24,000 feet. I got the plane somewhat out of the dive at about 7,000 feet. So that's a long, that's a long drop. I, and, and I, know, can't even, I can't even, I can't believe it. Decomp- we had explosive decompression. So there's wind screaming through the airplane. There's cables that were torn off when the nose was departed. They're slapping the, the windscreen. My left engine, that prop is out there. It, it just had cut him in half. And so now that engine had obviously failed and the prop went flat. So it's out there windmilling. It's like ty- tying a parachute to your left wing. Aerodynamically speaking, it's causing that kind of force. So I'm holding this and I'm a big guy. It took, it tore my shoulder apart holding this airplane up. It took us 35 minutes. And so I, I knew we have specific instructions depending on the target country of what we're supposed to do in an in-flight emergency. And back then we pulled our carriers into China still. Like there was a lot of controversy later. I said, oh, why don't you crash into the ocean? I'm like, I had specific directive orders to destroy the equipment and land and that's what we did. So now the crew in the back, they've been pinned to the floor in this inverted dive, and now I'm calling back to them saying, one, get your parachutes on, two, activate the destruction checklist. So they're opening up the emergency exits over the wings and they're chopping up the, the gear and chucking it out. In the meantime, the other fighter jet rolled on our sticks and asked for permission to shoot us down. And they, thank God, told him no. And so, you know, I'm trying to hold this plane up. I've got two of my four engines damaged, no nose. And my my tail is really acting weird. I couldn't get the forces out. I had to hold force onto it. Usually you can trim it out. I'm, I don't wanna to be too technical, but when I when I'd landed and later inspected the airplane, uh, there's a wire that goes from the very tip of the, of the roof of the cockpit to the tail. The front had torn off and it had wrapped around my tail. Okay? So I had a wire jammed into my elevator, which makes the plane go up and down, not good. Well, later when I was back, the people that took the airplane apart, one of the engineers, I was getting ready to go, I was actually on on an instructor, I had two students going to fly, this was months later, comes out, he says, hey, Lieutenant Osborne, I took apart your plane. I said, great, I'm gonna go flying, can we talk to you back? He goes, you know, you always complain about that wire on your tail? I I said, yeah, he goes, yeah, when we unraveled it, the elevator fell off the airplane. <laughs> that wire wrapped around my tail was what was keeping me up in the air. So we, we, we're calling Maydays, they're not answering us. We have to come in, and I didn't want to fly over the top of the city because this plane's disintegrated. And I didn't want to kill a bunch of people if we came apart, so I had to maneuver. Now, I knew where every airbase is on the east coast of China. We'll just leave it at that, right? So I knew where I was going, and it was the exact airbase where these guys were out of. So, <clears throat> we came around, but, but by then I'd lost my altitude. So I didn't have any airspeed. They were torn off. So all we had was the navigator calling out our GPS speed. But my flaps were damaged. I had two engines out of the four. And I didn't even know if my landing gear were going to come down because he hit my nose. I didn't know if my nose gear was going to come down. So I couldn't dump fuel. So I'm like 25,000 pounds overweight. So we ended up touching down at over 180 knots because the plane wouldn't fly any slower. You normally land at about one fifteen, so now we're overweight. We're land, you know, and so <clears throat> it took everything I had to get that plane stopped before it we went off the end of the runway. And so, you know, you touch down and you're like, "Holy crap!" The good Lord just stepped in. Clearly, this wasn't this wasn't mine and the other pilot's skill right? You know, the engineers, everybody did a great job, but there's more involved here, and so you know, you're, you're just, your adrenaline is pumping as you, you know it exactly. It's just, it's like being in a fire, you know, the adrenaline is maxed out. And now I'm looking around and I, I, I pull over to the side of the runway and up comes two troop carriers and a bunch of guys with AK-47s <laughs> surrounding my airplane. I'm like, gosh, shit, I wish I was just going to the officer's club to have a drink right now. Now I got to deal with this shit, you know? And so we made sure we were destroying any of the last radios before we got a satellite call out and, uh, and then I, you know, I didn't want to get anybody killed. So I, I took everybody off the airplane at gunpoint. And then Alan started, Sean. That was the, the flying I'd been well-trained for. Um, you know, we pulled it off, we, the crew did a great job. But now, you know, the interrogations began and they isolated me because I was the commander. So they basically kept me awake in a stool for about eight days, trying to break me. And uh, a funny side story is, that I hit it I hid it from the Navy. But I've had sleep apnea all my life. And so back then I, I when I got tested when I got out of the Navy, they said you're sleeping about an hour a day. <laughs> That's all the sleep you're getting. You're functioning, we don't know how you're doing it, but here, here you go. Here's a here's a CPAP, and I've had one since I was like 32 <laughs> years old. Now. It's crazy. It's really great when you're in the dating scene. Hold on, honey. Let me put on my CPAP. Yeah. Uh, but the they got a bit married now. But but uh, so so they they were very um, intense, right? And people think, oh, were you really scared? What you knew they. Were. I'm like, this is the Chinese. They're gonna do whatever they want. I later found that the military cut off. Communications with Beijing said, "We got this. We'll call you later." Literally, which I didn't know at the time, and I and I wondered because we then got moved later when that broke. But for a while, basically, the the, the Chinese Navy, their commander said, "I don't want to hear it. I don't want to hear from you guys. I'm gonna I'm gonna break these guys." And so that you know that changes your job, not from just surviving, but my job was to protect my crew. And so no matter what they threatened me with, and no matter what they said. I <clears throat> knew that you know, it was my job to protect them, and that's, that's what I did. So um, the crew stuck together, I was isolated. They went on a three-day hunger strike, so they were able to at least see me at meals. And they knew they were gonna have to kill me if they were gonna get to my crew. So I, I'm very proud of the fact that 90% of the crew, except the officers, they went through one interrogation for 20 minutes with two of them in a room. So you got your buddy next to you. And so it's about the most, you know, the best accomplishments of all that. It wasn't the aviation. It was protecting the crew and making sure everybody, you know, got home intact.
1: How I have so many questions I've never heard. Look, I've been in some crazy ass situations, combat situations, life and death situations, more firefights than I can possibly recount. But I have never heard anything like this ever. And it's like something that you'd see out of a movie, you know. I, I mean, honestly, I. How did you? you did know- the funniest thing is, is I, I did the book, Sean. Right,
2: um, Lionsgate was going to do the movie. They wrote a script and the
1: Chinese killed it. <laughs> <laughs> they pulled it because they they fund Hollywood. Yeah, ex- well, that's, that's exactly right. I'm, that I that is, still can't go there. They still consider me a murderer and a spy. That is complete. Over there that is complete bullshit that 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 hollywood Lionsgate, that they killed this project first of all oh they would deny it but i got i got told by somebody who knew. well of course i, I mean it makes it knew. makes we hear you hear the stories all the time so of course uh, you know the people that are watching and listening to this to this program are going to the they, they it's completely they get it of course this is how it is yeah china yeah. and and that's why that's why a lot of these hollywood production studios like are afraid to push back on China because like that's a significant portion of their revenue, you know. Ab- oh, absolutely bullshit. I, I, how did you? How did you know? Not you got twenty three people on the aircraft. How did you know? Not you said it was a god thing, but how did you know not to pull? Said you were, you know. I just, I, my gut said
2: we were in such a heavy dive. I was just like, I was looking out at the horizon. I'm like, I got, I got some altitude too, and I was just thinking. You know the air gets thicker the lower you are, so you get more control of the aircraft. When you're up high, the air is thin, so, so aircraft are more unstable. And I was just like, I I'm, I got to get down lower, right? I got to get down lower. And I don't I don't really, you know, it was just I, I don't know what it was, but but I just had this feeling of don't don't force it, you know, just let this thing come out. You know, you're right side up. You're coming out slow, but I took it really slow. I mean, could I maybe pull you know, if the t- tail wasn't damaged, I could have probably got out of that diet by 13, 12,000 feet. But something just my gut just said, Don't, don't force it. You got you got plenty of altitude. And I knew I knew I was gonna have to go into China.
1: People are like, well, could you make it back? I'm like, good lord. This thing <laughs> was in bad shape I was, to say the least. So I was gonna ask you, were you able to talk to your command? throughout all of this we we yeah they they called back and it was it
2: was it was it was the middle of the night there and so it was just a watchstander in hawaii and this poor guy is getting a call <laughs> and it, so, was on 1, it was on april it was on april 1st like so so a few people are like, is this some stupid April yeah. Fool's joke? <laughs> oh, God. Which I don't do April fuels, Fool's jokes. My All my family knows. Don't do the April oh, Fool's joke. It it's he, got to be what is some, some, some <laughs>
1: private or something, right? It has to be some private. Like, yeah, uh, just a guy. He's taking this call, and he said to
2: our guy, he goes, can you, can you hold for about five minutes? I need to call again. We're like, we can't hold, we're, we're at gunpoint here. You know what I mean? We gotta shut down. So, you know, I'm sure that, you know, that guy had a rough day to say the least, getting that call, right? But we got the information out. We let everybody know we were alive, um, you know, and then, and then
1: had to just destroy the radio. Okay, so you told me also that your crew were, they were throwing radios out of the plane as you're crashing. The crypto gear, the crypto yeah, gear in yeah. the area. Yeah. We have metal suitcases and they took an axe and they punch
2: a hole in it and throw it to the bottom of the ocean. You know that you're never going to find how, Well, And if you do, it'll be dissolved.
1: Well, Right. But how the hell are they doing this when they I mean, because I, I don't I've never been in a situation like once this. I got the plane straight and level, you know what I mean? It was still rough, but we were we were
2: upright. It was after we were out of a dive, obviously, that they started doing this. We had, it was 35 minutes from impact to when we landed. That's crazy. So it wasn't quick. How did you, uh, how did you land yeah. this thing? I, uh, you know, I, we, good crew, the plane held together. I can't believe that thing held together. The damage it took, that thing's a truck. And, uh, you know, if, if people said, well, what if it would have been a female pilot? And I had three females on board who did awesome. Uh, one was, uh one was my flight engineer, one was the navigator, and one was the one of the heads of Intel in the back. And, and uh, you know, I, I I said, female or not, I said there's 90% of the pilots I know wouldn't have been strong enough to hold it. The force it took, I mean, I back then I benched like 380. That's insane. I, I was a truck, you know what I mean? And it tore my shoulder apart holding it. I, uh, I not mean, much force for that long. I mean, that's total adrenaline, right? You know, those strengths, uh, you can do, yeah. right. But, but you know, how long can the adrenaline last? Right. And so, you know, I obviously had my co-pilot helping me hold it. It wasn't just me. Uh, initially it was, but then, and my co-pilot's a big dude too. So, I mean, it, it was, a. it was, a. it was, a, it was the right crew in the right place. And, and, and I, and I, I don't say it lightly. I mean, God stepped in and, uh, I made some deals
1: sitting sitting in a Chinese prison with, with the Good Lord, and I think I've held to him. I um, I'm absolutely stunned by this. I I, I mean, I, I remember this happening, by the way. Um, and I, I I couldn't believe it then, but to hear it personally from you now, it's just it's I I've never heard anything like this. And so you get off the aircraft, and there are there are. Chinese troops with AK-47s. I mean, those AK-47s are what at the high ready. Are they? Are they? Are they aimed? Are they aimed at you? A few of them were. A few of them were, and then they pulled them back. And they and they, they their
2: commander came up. They were as scared that we were there as we were. You know what I mean? They didn't expect us either. They're like, "What the hell's going on?" Right? And so the commander came up that was there, and he spoke English. Um, and he asked me if we were armed, and I, I assured him there were no weapons because we weren't allowed to have weapons. That's international law. For reconnaissance aircraft, we're not allowed to be armed, and so I assured him we had no weapons. And then, and then they they didn't they weren't pointing them at us anymore, but they were they were clearly wanted us off. When we were in the airplane, I left the engines running so they couldn't come up. Right, you're not going to walk up to an airplane with a prop. Screen. Right, right. And and that was while we were getting the calls out, but that was when they were getting really nervous. And they were, and I'm like, I don't need some young shithead popping off and shooting shooting one of us. Right, we, you know, there's just there's no point in it. And so, um, you know, then when it was time to got the airplane, I assured him, assured him we weren't armed. And, and uh, you know, so they took us in a, and put us in a bus. And then it's so funny because I, it, you know, you, you remember things and you forget some stuff. But I thought we'd walk somewhere. And I found out later that we took a bus and, you know, just little things when your mind's just at a, at a heightened sense, yeah. so to speak. And so, you know, those interrogations, they read like an hour of, how horrible america is and how i'm going to jail the rest of my life and we could be you know they can't guarantee that we're going to make it out of here alive and crap like that you know and and uh so you kind of after days get you know get used to it you know so then they'd like they'd p- take me back to a room and they'd let me fall asleep and then they'd startle me and wake me back up right and after a few days you get pretty freaking jumpy you know what i'm talking about when you're in the field and you're exhausted you know how trigger happy you get so to speak yes. like anything startles you so I had this guard that wore these taps on his shoes and would walk around my room and hawk loogies and sit them in the trash can and walk around and t- on taps and just piss me off. And I remember like day six, I'm hallucinating. I'm playing cards with my dead grandma, talking to her openly. And, and, uh, he woke me up. And, and like I said, they'd let me sleep for like 15 minutes and, and then, you know, jolt you. And, uh, he woke me up and I remember thinking, cause I had my own room, cause I was isolated from my crew. And I was like, there was a closet in this room. And I was like, I'm gonna go behind this little bastard. I'm gonna break his neck and I'm gonna hide him in that closet. And I hope they don't find <laughs> him until I get out of here. And that is when I scared myself. Cause I was ready to kill this guy. And that would have not been good as we all know. You know what I mean? And I was like, what in the fuck are you doing? You need to get your shit together. I. And so I just, I prayed hours. Anytime I wasn't being interrogated and while I was interrogated, I'd pray. And then when they talk to you because you're losing your mind, instead of trying to answer them with bullshit, I would start talking about Kentucky Fried Chicken and could they go get us some food and I'd be willing to pay for it. You know what I mean? I just totally, or I would talk about They'd be like, "What about your systems?" And so I'd start talking about the pitot tube, which is what tells you how fast the airplane's going. You know, so they start taking notes like they were getting some secret crap. And I, I'm told, and you know, after a while, I think they started to respect. I know they did at the end because the two commanders, the two main interrogators, came up and did pics with me when, once they were releasing me, saying, "You clearly care about your people, right?" Because I wasn't. They were gonna have to kill me, and they knew it. And so once you threaten somebody, like they were saying, you know, they, they, they would blow smoke in my face. And I hate cigarettes. I hate them. So that's what, one of the things they do to keep me awake is they, 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 their guards would take breaks and just sit there and smoke and blow smoke in my face. But they, you know, they made these threats. And once you don't follow through with those threats, then I knew it was a mental game and I owned it. Right. You know, if you, you say you're going to take me away and put me in a jail and you don't. You say you're going to, you know, you're going to threaten to hit me. You're going to do this if I don't start talking and you don't do it. Well, now, now the advantage is mine, so to speak. So they tried changing tactics and then I'll stop like day nine. So the rest of the crew hadn't been interrogated. They're just bored in their rooms with a roommate, right? Freaking out, but at least not being interrogated. So they tried doing a a crew interrogation after we ate and we're sitting there and I have my head up, my other number two officer and then my senior enlisted guy, a guy named Nick Mellows, uh, who is, I was 26. At that time, he'd been in the Navy 28 years. He's a Greek dude, larger than life. Um, you would love this guy. And they're reading all this stuff that they've been reading to me every time they interrogate me about threatening, you know. And and Nick Mellows has a, a, a temper, to say the least, right? He's a big Greek dude, he's bald headed. He talks two inches from your face. Every other word's the F word, <laughs> but everybody loves him. I mean, he, he can insult the hell out of you and you don't care. And so he's getting pissed, right? He's starting to get mad. I'm like, oh, I can't have him losing his temper because if he loses it, this could be bad, right? So they're reading this and he's he's starting to get physically angry. So I we're sitting at a table. So I just reach my right hand down and sit next to me and I start rubbing his inner thigh. <laughs> And he's looking at me like, what the hell? You know what I mean? I started rubbing his inner inner thigh, giving him a few grazers, and he chilled out after that. He was like, what the hell? We still laugh about that to this day.
1: I had to to de-escalate the situation. I can't. What is going through your mind during those eight days in captivity? I mean, how are you? I mean, you start. You know, it, tell me about the the slow deterioration of what that was like. Because I know, you know, you you start strong, and they're throwing all these threats at you. But over time, yeah, you know, you're sleep deprived. Your mind starts playing tricks on you. You start like, like you said, you start like yeah, losing it's, your it's, mind. It's a mental,
2: it's a mental strength game, and it was horrible. But it taught me everything I needed to know about myself. If that makes sense. You know what I mean? Yeah, it was intense. Did you ever? It have, was twelve days, and it was a long time. I thought we were going to be there a hell of a lot longer. Twelve days it is a long time. I, that's that's that's. It is a long time. I always tell you, I said, "Go sit in a closet in the dark for six hours, and then come talk to me." You know, don't even have to have anybody messing with you. Just go sit in a closet for six hours. You can't sleep. Stay awake and just sit there. Do they? Did and you then, go through you any
1: know, like sear
2: training? Like, service? we had, we had, yeah, we had been. We all have to go through SEER training, and that was some of the best. I remember taking that training. And they're, you know, they put you out in the cold and we were we almost got canceled. It was the middle of winter in Maine, Brunswick, Maine. And they had a couple guys that that got hypothermia. And then they capture you, right? And they literally smack the shit out of you. They put you in a box. They interrogate you. You know, they do stress positions and and uh and uh I got hit pretty good. It messed my job for a couple years. A big dude popped me. Um and I mouthed off. I was being a dipshit young idiot. And uh, it, you know, so he let me know who was in charge real quick. And I remember the time going, this is just some bullshit military <laughs> harassment training. <Yeah. laughs> you know what I mean? But the one thing they did was they did I'm not gonna get into the techniques, but they do certain things where you screw up and they're like, they did something and they they said, Okay, you need to sign in here. So I signed in, right? And then later they showed me, it was like a confession. It was a piece of, you know, it was folded in a way that I didn't know it, but it was a signed confession. Right. And it I'll never forget it. Cause it embarrassed the shit out of me. Hmm. I mean, and uh, you know, it was one, of, I just, I just read John McCain's book before that. And so as, all, as this is all going on, I'm like, Hey, this ain't year six, this ain't year eight. And I always just thought to myself, the blood's not going to go thin on my watch because, um, <clears throat> And 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 I have very mixed feelings on John McCain. Po- politically, I'm not a fan, but he had a he had a saying that that I always remembered, and he it, it said, "It's all about when you get home and you're looking at your buddy across the bar, knowing you did it right."
1: Does that make sense? Yes. It's it, it's 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 about being able to live with yourself. I'm that's it makes complete sense to me. I mean, all that we were focused on, like all the politics and the. You know, the bullshit, foreign policy stuff, like when you're in, you know, boots on the ground in Afghanistan, all that stuff goes away. And the only yep. thing that matters is making sure that you don't let the person next to you down. And so I completely, completely get it. And oh, and for just so people are tracking, SEER is survival, evasion, resistance, and escape, correct? Like it's been a long time. Yeah, it's POW training. Yeah. They teach you how to try to get away and they teach you how to act in the in the code of conduct if you get caught. Did you did you well, harken back to any of that training i mean sometimes it sometimes oh absolutely yeah i was going to say sometimes it just absolutely. happens like unconsciously you just do um yeah and i in the in the you know i want to i would protect my crew anyway but half that crew were
2: special assigned folks that that are brilliant but not necessarily the same military training does that make sense yes yes you know, they're linguists they're they're these are not these are not marines yeah <laughs> i had a marine on board but these are not you know you know what I'm saying? So I was really careful. And the, the funny thing about it is usually when I'm flying, off of Vietnam, I got a bunch of Vietnamese descent Americans in the back, right? Or, you know, I ran, I got some Persians on board, right? We, we only had one Asian person on this airplane and he was the in-flight technician. So he was Filipino. They were convinced he was Chinese. They kept screaming at him in, in Chinese and he didn't speak a <laughs> word of it. So it was one of those, the, the you know, the diversity of the crew was there but it wasn't there was there were no chinese people on board so they couldn't figure out who did what and so that really helped us in being able to just kind of keep them at arm's distance so they couldn't just focus on the four chinese guys or gals on the airplane and start getting after them you know what i mean
1: yeah oh god that is that is crazy i so how did you find out that it was over and, and you were going to make it home Like how did that how did that news break to you how were you told they
2: did a group, they did a group meeting, they read the whole thing that you're, you're a spy and you're a murderer and you're, you know, blah, blah, blah. And in the, in the spirit of, you know, goodwill, you'll be released. And I was kind of like, don't get your hopes up. This, we don't know yet. And then um, they did all the pics, you know, the, that was when I knew, when, the, when my head interrogators that had been putting the screws to me for 12 days came up and were taking individual pictures with me I was like, okay. And so then we got out and we had probably a, I don't know, four mile drive to the airport. So they put us in vans. They had a soldier or a police officer every four feet on both sides of the road, the entire trip to the airport. We pull up and they wouldn't let a U.S. military aircraft come get us. So it was a continental jet. And at the top of the, at the top of the ladder is my skipper, my commanding officer, Mike Pagliarulo, Pags, who's like six foot five <laughs> mustache German dude, you know, he's standing up there just grinning. And I'm like, oh, and one of my favorite picks is the pick they took. We all got our own seats on the airplane, open Rose, right? We're tired. Th- the second I got the call, we were in international airspace, <clears throat> my body shut down, shut down. There's a great pick that I love that I've got framed where my eyes, my face is just, you know, like I was finally safe. And so, you know, you flip the defenses off and body needs some rest, to say the least. Uh, they, they found me. They were doing debriefs. I was said I was going to the restroom, apparently. They found me like four floors away ro- roaming around this building. <laughs> I didn't know where the hell I even was, you know. So, it was, it was a great day. And the funny thing is, at the time, I didn't even know if I'd ever be able to tell the story. I didn't know if anybody knew. What we did was so secret that I couldn't even tell people in the Navy what I did you know, so it was, I, I knew it was obviously public when we landed in Guam and there was all these TV crews. And I was like, okay, life just changed. I was literally going to go fly for the CIA and, uh, you know, was going to going to make that transition and uh, that I knew was blown. So at the time I was kind of like, shit, that was kind of my career path here. And yeah. now this, now I got to go talk to cameras, you know, and what I'm, and that was what amazed me. And then September 11th hit, you know we we did all this whirlwind tour and there was all this attention and i i just i was back flying 3 weeks later i made them put me back in the cockpit cuz that was the only thing that cleared my mind was getting back in the air and so i'm flying I'm an instructor i'm doing the you know doing the speaking tour that kind of stuff for the navy and you know it's prior to september 11th so i was the you know the the 15 minute guy right and then the weekend september 9th i got invited back to nebraska Nebraska was playing Notre Dame for the first time in thirty years or forty, you know, and I got to do the coin toss on September 9th. Uh, wow! Got to bring my crew out. It was one of the best weekends of my life. Wow, um, to say the least. It was so cool. So I, you know, if you're a Husker, what what better? I I flew home and I remember my mom because I was on the west coast. My mom calling, waking me up, bawling, and said, "Somebody hit the towers." I'm like, "What are you talking about?" And I thought it was just bad weather. You know, when I heard about the first one, I'm turning on the TV, watching it. And the second I saw the second one go in, I'd already spent over two years in the Middle East collecting intel. I knew who did it. I knew what it was. And I was getting ready to transfer out of my squad. And I went into my skipper and I said, you, I'm staying. We're going to have to figure out OPSEC, right? Because I was such a high-vis guy, you know, sending me over to the Middle East. There was, they caught a couple crews filming me, you know, people filming me, trying to monitor me. I'm sure they wanted my head on a platter. I'd have been a great trophy for them. But, you know, flying those first missions in to FK, I would have never forgiven myself if I wouldn't have been able to go. You know what I mean? It would have haunted me the rest of my life. And so I was, I flew over 300 combat hours in 32 days
1: to kick that off. That's why I mean, that is, it's stunning to me that after what you went through in Chinese captivity, really, I mean, there's no other way to say it. Uh, right? Like, did they, did they, did you get like a, I guess, I don't think, did you get like a prisoner of war medal? Like, cause they, they, you know, there, there,
2: there, there was talk of it and the politics said no. Yeah, cause this wasn't a, it wasn't like a, a war, right? But it would qualify under, it would, it, it would, it would technically qualify because of the duress we were under. They changed it after Iran, right? Cause we weren't at war with Iran. Oh, right. All those people, you know, but I didn't, I don't, I'm not, I, I don't, I don't just don't give a shit about them. You know what I mean <laughs> I, it, it never, could I have pursued it? Yeah, but who cares? Well, right. I'm here. Yes. We all made it back. We did have, we did have one crewmate take his own life a couple of years later. Sad deal. Um, the Navy really left him. It gave him some mental health issues. He had some issues and they literally, because he was struggling mentally, they took him and sent him to be a SEER trainer teach pow training what the hell i, I don't know right yeah. he's struggling with it and that's the last place you send the guy and then he took his life and his name's brandon funk uh, was a great guy Guy. brilliant i don't even know how many languages that kid spoke god but, sad deal but we got everybody home and that's the point so the, the medals don't mean shit
1: no they don't they don't and you learn that real quickly when you get home that it- all the medals in the it's, world. It's I'm
2: just happy to be here. Yeah. That's what
1: I mean. I'm just happy to be here. Yeah. I mean, because wait, so you, you got the, dis- I, I, I like, you got the distinguished flying cross. That's a huge deal. Yes. Like that's, it, so that's yeah, at the time I was, I was the only person flying in the Navy that had. Them. Yeah. So like, just to put it into perspective, like the army awards, the distinguished service cross, which is like what like major winters got during world war two. Uh, you know that's the second highest o- award for valor or second highest award period in the whole country in the army is that the same for the navy like the only thing higher is the medal of honor it would be one no it would not no no it'd be it'd be one step below that but
2: it's still very high i mean it is it, it was an honor to get it like the, the crew got air medals i don't know that was kind of bullshit but whatever um they they wanted to give me the navy cross but it has it can only be given during combat and we weren't at war with china so that's why I was to the D- DFC, which is fine. I, I,
1: like I said, I I can't. Uh, this your story yeah. is unbelievable. I mean, do you do you do you struggle with some of the? I mean, I can't imagine going through eight days of of torture and not waking up in the middle of the night sometimes yeah, and being yeah. like – so.
0: You know, no, yeah, and it's
2: gotten better. I mean, you know, I'm, I'm about to turn forty nine. Long time ago, and, and I've I've really, I've really, I I these days for a lot of years. They, I mean, they call Simon the Angry Osborne right i mean i was definitely a guy and then they called me sugar later because they say i sugarcoat everything which i do not but i really i really chilled now and there's and, and i and there's one i you know i realized you can only control what you can control so i'm, I'm a big marcus aurelius stoic fan I've, that's helped me find peace and i just spend every day at least a half hour reading the bible and it's brought me so much peace i've always been a religious guy don't get me wrong but later in life I was struggling so much with the nightmares and the being pissed off about, you know, I still get a little jumpy. I definitely don't want fireworks going off behind me. You know, there's some things that aren't just going to go away, but I've really found a way to kind of, I guess that's my way of, of coping with it and, and just kind of letting go and realizing all everything. I think losing that Senate race helped me. That was a pretty big defeat for me when I lost. Um, just kind of realize, you know what? You're not, you're not going to win everything you go after. Right. Just, just roll with it a little bit.
1: I mean, in any sane world, and I can't tell you how many people that I've said this to on this show that have tried to run for office that, that are freaking national heroes. And you, you are one. I know that you probably hate to hear that, but I've, I've never heard a story like yours and you should have walked into a damn Senate seat. Uh, but you know, I, like I know when I when I ran, and I don't want to speak for you, Shane, but when I ran, like I went into it like wanting to make this country a better place, wanting to give our kids a country that's rich with opportunity, um, same country that we grew up in, only better. And you just realize how many terrible people on both sides of the aisle are in are in politics, and oh. it's it it oh. really discourages you when you get a look behind the curtain and and look. I, I don't I don't know. I don't even want to get into to Trump or how people feel about Trump. But like what he he exposed that there really is a, a yes. swamp there and, and, and it exists. They're entrenched bureaucrats with very little life experience outside of the government and, and many of the elected officials. These people they love the title of being a member or being a representative or a senator they think it's cool they like the authority that comes along with it and the power but they're not there to to do a job they're they're not there to make the world a better place and that that is so concerning to me and it's unfortunate that you know I learned that just trying to serve my country just how dirty and despicable some of these people are um, and yeah. it sounds like you had a similar experience. I, I mean, it's crazy. I did. I had. I did my last year. I, I, I got, I, I moved up to the Navy yard
2: cause I was, I had to have a bunch of surgeries, my shoulder, uh, my ankle, some other stuff. Right. So basically I was on my way out. I decided to get out, um, you know, being that well-known in the military at that low of a rank, being a new Oh three. And, you know, you've literally got four stars calling you and asking you to come to speak. It just, I stayed in. Most people get out after something like that, right? They go out, they write the book, they get out. They came to me and said, will you write the book? The Navy did. And I said, only if I can stay in, (laughs) you know, it was just a different, I planned on staying in. I realized it wasn't going to work. Right. Once I was out of my command and out of the people that knew me, I got just treated weird everywhere I went. Right. Mm -hmm. You know, you know, your 06 doesn't want a famous 03 underneath him. That's getting, he's getting calls from four stars saying, can he come this week? And do his, it just doesn't work. It's not conducive to the military. Fine. Yeah. I got out. I could tell you this. My last year I, I was in DC. So I knew I was kind of looking at politics a little bit, but I started getting to know a few of the congressmen, right? Going, going to the the Capitol Hill club and you yeah, know, yeah. 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 I'll never forget having drinks and table, uh, with, a, I won't name names, but I literally, when they started telling my story to a congressman who didn't know the story, which, you know, this is like 2003, you know what I mean? It was like, like you're in Congress, it's your job story? to, yeah, exactly. I <laughs> mean, you didn't hear about this and that's fine, but I'm kind of like, and he goes, wait, you're in the Navy and you fly? And I said, yeah, and he goes, the Navy has airplanes? And I just, I stopped. It's a congressman asking me, he thought those were Air Force planes landing on the carrier, like a congressman. And I went, "Holy shit! What's running our country?" Uh, exactly. And I can tell you, I've only met a handful, and you know it, that are worth a shit. The rest of them, they're not good people.
1: I don't care I, if they're R or D. I, I could not agree with you more. And, and like the the good people that I know, and they're they're there, they're they're really great people. There's, there's not there, many. And they're and they're really great. Like, uh, uh and I, lo- I love them dearly, but they're not many. There are not many. And I don't no. know what that says about the state of our country or what it means with regards to where we're headed. But like I said, in any sane world, a guy like you walks into the House of Representatives or walks into the Senate with no issues. It's just it, Amer- it's a different yeah. It feels. It feels like it's a different time now. I don't know. I don't know. But.
2: It, it, it does. It does. We're in, a, we're in a very, very vulnerable place in our country's history right now. And I think it's, um, you know, weakness invites that. And I'm not a hawk, but boy, I'm not I'm, either. I'm, I'm, I'm not sure either. about our future. I am not a hawk by any stretch. And uh, I just I don't like where we're going, where we're at. And, you know, um, you know, this not not to get political, but seeing what what we're doing to a former president, I don't care what side of the aisle. You're I completely like agree. This is bullshit. That's bullshit. everybody. Everybody, everybody, everybody outside of
1: everybody outside of D.C. and New York City knows it's complete bullshit. Or they're they're on the hard left and they don't want to. They don't want it. They they're just glad. They're living in denial. They're just yeah. yeah,
2: They don't they don't care. They're they're win win at all costs type folks. And there's some on the right too that'll do that type of stuff. But right now, what you're seeing is this isn't good for our country.
1: And and to your point about we've got uh, some Republicans showing their true colors, right? Yes. By yes. not even calling it out. Absolutely right. And and it's like, it's, it's this is the number one thing that when you talk to people uh, when I was running campaigns, they just want someone who's willing to fight for them. That's it. That's the number one quality that they want. It doesn't mean that you're going to agree with them on everything. They just want somebody who's going to be honest and somebody who's going to fight. And you talked about not being a hawk. And I think there's. For me, having gone through what I went through in co- in direct combat with an enemy of the United States, and gone through what you went through, it's hard to come out of that and and, and want to put others p- through it potentially, you know. And so that's why yes. I, I I I can't, in good conscience, uh, embrace uh what what they would call today like a neoconservative hawkish mentality on foreign policy and this idea that we should be right. fighting wars everywhere. Like it, it's just like having been through what I've been through, like we, that should be a, a last resort, but it doesn't seem like it's a last resort to many of the leaders that we have in Washington. It's just that they just want to go, go, go and figure out the mission in the end state after. And I just can't get on board with something like that. No, We've got no business. We get we've got
2: our own problems to take care of. I, I completely got our, agree on issues that we're not addressing here. And, and, uh, uh, we're, we're going to get our, we're going to get ourselves in a, in a real bad place and, Uh, You know, we took the eye off of China for 20 years. What in the hell? I know. It's like, what are you talking about?
1: Uh, I I completely agree. I, I completely agree with you. And I just feel like, man, I... I've already kept you for an hour and 15 minutes. I don't want to keep you anymore, but you got to promise me that you come back here and talk with me more. I mean, yeah, I, sure. I, I,
2: hey, I appreciate
1: you having it. It was, it was fun. I, I enjoyed <laughs> it. And, um, you know, it's, uh, it's always, a, it's always good to have a good
2: conversation with some,
1: uh, like-minded people. I mean, next time you're in Pittsburgh or I'm down in Florida or wherever the hell our paths cross a beers are on me because man, you deserve it. I, I mean, am in Omaha most of the time, but I am down in Florida on occasion. Well hey, I, you know, if I'm ever in Omaha, if I'm ever in Nebraska, like yeah. I said, drinks on me. I, but I'd love to meet you. RWH Energy is 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 your company. Tell tell us yep. what you're up to now and we've oh, got sure. lots that, of energy just, folks who tune into this. We're, yeah, we're a Department of Energy energy services company.
2: We're a hundred percent disabled veteran owned, uh, hire a lot of, you know, disabled vets, work with a lot of other veteran firms at least. Um, and we build microgrids and do energy efficiency. So um, help bring resiliency uh, to people that need power critically, you know, do like a- anything as simple as like an LED upgrade for campuses and, and large commercial industrial. And so we bring the capital with it. It's, it's pretty cool. It's, there's a website, rwhenergy.com, and, and uh, things, are, things are good, but we do everything that makes economic sense. Um, it's not just a, a green energy sort of speak company. It's more of an energy efficiency and resiliency company.
1: I love it. I love it. And also an extraordinarily important mission. You know, our grid is so vulnerable in so many different ways, but that's a conversation wow. for, for another time. I, I, I feel like. I hope that you stay in the fight politically, even if it's, even if it's like not directly involved, I, but this country needs people like you now more than ever, Shane. and, and, Thank you for giving us your time today. Thank you hey, for coming on, on for the show. Thank you for your
2: service, and I appreciate you having me.
1: This is awesome. Any anytime, man. Anytime. God bless you, and, and All right. like God, God bless, bless your service, All man. Right. Thanks, brother. Wow, ladies and gentlemen, that was Shane Osborne. I have been in some ridiculously terrible life and death situations before in my life. Really, really bad spots. I've never heard a story like Shane's before. So I, I hope you enjoyed the episode and the conversation. Um, like I said to you, uh, like I say to you at the end of every episode, like we have some amazing things coming. I'm so excited to share them with you. Um, this show isn't anything without you, the audience. It's for you. Uh, we work hard every week to improve bit by bit just to make the show better for you. So as always... Thank you all so much for watching, you know, subscribe to wherever you listen to podcasts, uh, subscribe to my YouTube channel. Uh, but we're really migrating over to Rumble right now because YouTube, like why spend all the time, money, investment and uh, in building a YouTube channel when they can just suspend you <laughs> at the drop of a hat. So we're migrating over to Rumble uh, so you can watch everything there. You get tons of exclusive content. So subscribe to my channel, Sean Parnell or Sean Parnell Battleground. Both of the same. Uh, go to the website official Com. We've got signed copies of all of my books on there from Outlaw Tomb, Man of War, All Out War, One True Patriot, Left for Dead. They're all there. Um, and we're also rolling out Battleground Apparel. Of so officialshawnParnell.com, Check it out. Uh, and anytime you need anything from me, just write me on my social media, Instagram, Facebook, whatever. I, I typically respond. We get lots of messages, but I try to respond to every single one. And as always, God bless you all. And God bless this exceptional nation that we live in. Take care.